Welcome to the Affordable Freedom Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Hune. Our mission is to help you gain your freedom from the exhausting, never-ending corporate rat race. Because time is our most valuable asset. And life's just too short to do work we hate. Thanks for slowing down. Welcome to the Affordable Freedom Podcast, everyone. Today, my guest is Natalie Hales. And Natalie and I hit it off right away when I met her about a year ago on LinkedIn. And although financial advisors like me are her target market, she didn't reach out to sell me anything. She reached out to tell me that my content was resonating with her. And she went on to share several insights, you know, as we got to know each other, to share several insights about her background and how her life experience has shaped her um, in a similar way to how my life experiences have shaped me. And I bring this up because authentic human connection is a necessity if you want to build a business on social media. It's the best way I've found to stand out from the crowd. And if there's one thing that Natalie's great at, it's helping her clients to be more human and therefore attract more business. Now, she specializes, like I said, in serving financial advisors, but her insights are beneficial to pretty much any professional service provider in the digital age. So... I'm really excited to have her on the show today. Natalie, thanks for joining me. Oh, thank you, Brian. That was so kind. Appreciate it. Of course. Well, again, thank you for joining me. And one of the things that we connected on pretty early on, Natalie, was how we both grew up in you know kind of a lower middle class, blue collar kind of a community. And that really, you know, your, your upbringing has a profound impact on your money mindset. So I was wondering if you could share with the listeners a little bit about how that sort of shaped your money mindset. Yeah, definitely. I grew up um, child of immigrants, blue collar. We call it EOA, which means East of Adelaide in London, Ontario, which is kind of the wrong side of the tracks. Definitely rougher neighborhoods as well. And uh, with just not a lot of money at all to go around. But I think that was really normal for my neighborhood. Um, it was kind of rare to see people who were more affluent in my neighborhood. So we all kind of grew up somewhat similar, but it does, you know, it does change your, your money mindset does have you growing up because my parents were very much blue collar themselves. My dad worked in a factory. My mom was a nurse. We saved what we could, but my mom, she was disabled by the time I was in high school. And then my dad ended up having a stroke as well that caused him to go on disability as well. So it didn't take long. I mean, I think I was I was fresh out of university in my first job before my both my parents were uh, considered disabled and on disability. So growing up, I think really shaped my mindset to kind of be that saver and uh, always seeing the value in everything. And and also I just had an incredibly cheap dad who even went so far as to teach me, you know, how to get the most value out of everything, how to basically, I mean, I think his model was if you don't ask, you know, all they can say is no, that was his motto. And so he would always kind of just try and get the best deal or kind of talk his way into whatever he could for free. Um, And to be honest, it, it blew my mind a little bit because 90% of the time it worked. I don't know if it was just the sheer audacity or just that he's like a friendly guy that everybody enjoys um, or that he's like a big six foot two 
soccer, <laughs> English soccerman, um, but it worked. And for the most part, uh, he taught me kind of the value of a dollar, but he also taught me to take risks and take chances. Um, so I, that's kind of how I grew up uh, before our, our own kind of family tragedy, which is my, you know, both my parents being on disability and then my dad having a stroke and kind of finding out that that situation was hereditary. And so we were in an interesting situation when, by the time I was, you know, out of university, we had this very uh, unique situation, which I don't think a lot of families go through at that age thinking, okay, parents don't have income and three kids might also have this neurological rare hereditary stroking disease. That was the beginning actually of my, weirdly, beginning of my my financial journey as well. Hmm. Yeah, I can definitely relate to um, the bargain hunting and, and looking for deals anywhere. Um, <laughs> that's my mom. I don't know if she's listening to this. She does actually listen to the podcast. So if she's listening to this, she knows how good of a bargain hunter I am. <laughs> yeah, I love and honestly, I still love it. When I was younger, I used to be so embarrassed all the time. I used to be like, oh my God, you know, <laughs> everywhere we went asking for a deal. Da, 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 da. But now that I'm older, I'm just like, man, I can really see how much like we got and how much kind of, you know, how much just putting yourself out there can get you. And, you know, where if you don't ask or you don't kind of get the gumption up to kind of negotiate, then you get what you get. That's right. That's right. Again, like your dad said, the worst that they can say is no. Right. And I think that there's a lot of um, a lot of good things that that came from that kind of upbringing for me that have translated specifically to now as an entrepreneur, because as we all know, it takes some time as an entrepreneur to get the business off the ground. You have to start to become a little bit more resourceful and, you know, make your dollars go a little bit further. Mm -hmm. And it becomes a little bit easier when that's something that's sort of naturally ingrained in you. Have you found that to be the case as well? Actually, yeah, I would, I would definitely say that's helped me to kind of figure out how to stick with it, how to, you know, if I'm having some, some month more difficult months, it doesn't bother me to kind of tighten the belt. Something mm -hmm. I've done over and over again is kind of just figuring it out. Just growing up the way you do is figuring out, okay, where can I cut and where can I build? And I think, I think that's essential as an entrepreneur actually to figure, because it's not, you know, that steady life, that steady kind of corporate career income that ends <laughs> and you have to figure out, okay, you know, you have to plan ahead. You have to tighten when needed. You can, you know, um, and you have to figure out what, where, what's valuable to spend money on, right? You can't just throw it around. Uh, so growing up, similar in the way that we did, I think was some of the best lessons you can learn as an entrepreneur, because it doesn't really phase me now when, um, when I'm rolling in it, because I know that could change in months. And, mm -hmm. you know, I've been there, done that. And uh, I've had incredibly hard years uh, like before I started my business when I was younger, kind of trying to make it in Toronto on my own. And I've also had really successful years kind of being this model corporate employee, making great money. Um, but I'm also, I also understand that uh, it's your choices and 
that really make the difference. And, and it can all change and it can all change in a moment. And it's all up to you as well. I think growing up the way that we did also puts a level of ownership on your, on yourself. Like it's not just the situation around you. You can control it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, it, there's always this mindset of, you know, maybe I'm struggling right now, but it could be worse. And oh, yeah. I've actually been there when it's worse. So, you know, this actually feels pretty good. So there's that, there, there's a lot of good things that have come from that. But for me, what I found is there's also some, some negative aspects to that as well. I've always had a very deeply ingrained scarcity mindset around money. I've always yeah. felt like I wasn't going to have enough. Mm-hmm. And therefore yeah. I always needed more, 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 more yeah. to get to a point where I finally had enough. But now as I'm starting to switch out of this scarcity mindset into more of an abundance mindset, mm-hmm. knowing that if I'm working on things that are important to me, knowing that if I'm, like you said, to your point, identifying my values and only allocating my money towards those things, um, you kind of start to develop this level of confidence that you just know that there's going to be more financial opportunities ahead. Yeah. Um, so this transition from this scarcity mindset that I was hardwired with growing up lower middle class, blue collar to more of an abundance mindset now has been a big transformation for me. Have you experienced anything similar? Yeah, I would say um, that scarcity mindset kind of come. I've evolved from it. I, I grew up with it as well. My husband, he still very much has that scarcity mindset. Um, so I understand completely where he's coming from. Um, but I think um, going through different situations and kind of that were tougher and that you've, you've been there, done that, I think really helps. Um, so that really helped me kind of overcome that scarcity mindset um, into the abundance mindset. And also um, just listening to uh, people who seem to have success, so a lot of success. I think that's helped me as well to to try and release that scarcity mindset because um, it's what you're putting out into the world and uh, what you think and how you think is kind of in, in my mindset is what you get. And so I, I'm careful about kind of the thoughts that I put out into the world now Um because I've just noticed that if I am almost delusional <laughs> in my in my aspirations, then uh, I can make those happen. Uh, but if I stay in something like a scarcity mindset where I'm constantly worried about bills or um, or my sa- like the level of my savings account, then I've just noticed that that those things don't change because I'm constantly thinking about them in the same ways. So, but I will say that. Um, I grew up with that scarcity mindset uh, and it, it was like, for me, it kind of evolved into like uh, buying clothes and having things and, and it would be like almost hoarding them. I didn't want to get rid of things because I didn't know when was the next time I might be able to afford more. Duh, 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 duh. And that doesn't serve you either, right? Just the collection of stuff is also just like a, a some mental space that is occupying your brain. So 
I found it really freeing actually to get rid of a lot of stuff that I didn't use or what was no longer serving me. And, um, I think that helped as well. Yeah. hundred percent. Um, addition by subtraction. Mm-hmm. Just doing yeah. that with everything really made a huge difference. Just the way that you think, the things that you have around you, trying to live a more minimalist lifestyle and just seeing, okay, the world isn't going to cave in on you. Um, what are the outcomes of this? And kind of just being a little bit more aware of what can happen. It's that awareness though. That's probably the hardest part for the majority of us. It definitely was for me. I had a really hard time becoming aware and trying to do that on a regular basis. It's amazing to me the, the shift that takes place when we start to think we have enough, we're going to have enough mm-hmm. because we don't need as much as we have always thought we needed. 100%. And then when you get to that point where you know like you're going to be okay and you can just start focusing on things that you're really passionate about yeah. and then increasing your value to the world, it creates just this kind of positive feedback loop. You know, where eventually you're going to get to that point where financial opportunities come in more and more. I think that's exactly it. I think we're both kind of saying the exact same thing that once you have that level of confidence, either in your accounts or in yourself to be like, no matter what, I'm going to be okay. Um, No matter what happens, I'm going to be okay. And, And it's confidence either in yourself or your situation. And that changes everything. Um, just, just that confidence. And so I, I completely agree in what you're saying. So Natalie, let's talk a little bit about burnout. Um, you and I have talked about that, um, quite a bit. Well, because you helped me to identify my niche when I worked with you and we kind of decided what I really wanted to do was start working with people who are kind of like I was in the past when I was burned out in the corporate world, miserable, wanting to build a better life. And you experienced that as well in your corporate career. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your experience. Yeah, yeah, you bet. Um, I think we talked about this a little bit before and kind of that same high achiever mindset, or we did anyways. Um, And I I still do. Um, But I mean, back in the day when I was working in in the corporate world, I really prided myself on my work ethic, like to a ridiculous point. And I I took like weird pleasure in the fact that I could outwork, you know, my colleagues, like quadruple the workload of some of my colleagues. And, um, and, and I mean, that led me to have some, a lot of authority in my role. And I was able to kind of just do my job and also with, with very little, little oversight, but it also meant that I was working ridiculously long hours to accomplish that, um, to be able to take that pride and say, I could run this department all on my own. You know, what I had to do to actually do that was unrealistic. And after a few years thinking I could do it all on my own, I, I started to suffer physical symptoms long before I realized mentally I was burned out my endometriosis pain got so bad. My, I started to experience stomach issues. I started to have weekly migraines and then I even developed a breast tumor, if you can believe it. Um, and then with all of that, I still really didn't see that I was experiencing burnout. I just thought, 
oh, like <laughs> have a run of bad luck, basically. Even though anybody who, you know, could probably see from the outside, you know, this is this is her running on, you know, 120% for way too long. And um, I, mean, I mean, I remember when I had my breast tumor removal surgery, I went back to work that day. I worked from home in the afternoon. And I mean, like mm. bleeding through bandages while you're giving updates and providing advice is not normal behavior. No. <laughs> <laughs> and I think if you can, if you can catch yourself and you look back now and you can look back, maybe some of your listeners maybe can look back on cer certain situations and think, I did that. What, what the heck was I thinking? Well, it's okay. You were totally burned out and you weren't thinking, <laughs> right? Exactly. And, and so for me, what changed was, you know, my, my stomach issues got, uh, got so bad. I actually ended up on some really heavy duty antibiotics and a severe diet restriction. Um, that forced me to take a step back from work, um, because I mentally felt like I, I couldn't work. I had the flu all the time from these antibiotics and from this, you know, basically being on meat and water, uh, was like a huge shock to my system. And so it forced me to take a step back from work and, you know, specialists were taking, telling me you need to take it easy. You need to take it easy. And I finally had to listen to them because I honestly didn't have the energy to do anything else. <laughs> um, but around that time, you know, while I was recovering, um, and it was only a few weeks, but I was passed over for a project that I wanted, uh, because my, my leader needed me. Um, and so I realized then what happens when you're really good at what you do and you kind of put your head down and you just produce work and you kind of just are that quiet cog in the wheel. No one wants to mess with a good thing, right? No one wants to, you know, change anything. And so I, I used that time anyways, to think about how had I gotten to that point, right? How had I gotten to that point with my burnout? How had I gotten to the point where, even when I want a project, I can't because I'm, I'm, I've so invested myself into this department that they can't do without me. And is this something I really want to do? I think having a few, few weeks to kind of step back and look around, you know, I realized, is this where, like, is this, these leaders that I'm looking at, is this where I want to be in 20 years? You know, and, and how far, I had really gotten away from my purpose, my true purpose, which was, you know, helping advisors to make an impact on everyday people through them. And so um, I'd really gotten away from that at that point. And so it was like this, how the heck did I let this happen moment? But it, it literally took essentially being told I had to stay home and not work and take a break for me to realize that. Um, and, and, you know, when I went back, I, I decreased my workload significantly, like 75%, right? I went back to like doing what everybody else was doing. I'm just going to do what everybody else does. See where that gets me. And for me, that was like 75% less of what I was actually doing. And I started to focus more on working, but also telling people, you know, what I'm doing as well, spending the time to kind of promote the projects that I was currently on and talking about, I was doing and focusing on 
doing those things, talking, you know, building my personal brand within the company actually opened doors that my work alone couldn't. And it was like a light bulb went off, right? Um, that your success actually hinges on how others perceive you, not just what you can, what you can actually achieve. So I think that was a, uh, an awakening for me. I always knew that I wanted to start my own business and, I always knew I wanted to, you know, help advisors. And so um, when I kind of had this harsh lesson myself, and I was there for a few more years before I started my own business, but I knew I wanted perception to be a big part of how I helped advisors. And so helping them with their personal brand just seemed to make sense. As you were describing your experience of, of going through burnout, I couldn't help but think to what we were talking about previously about both of our uh, upbringings, mm. um, being, you know, from blue collar communities, because I don't know about you, but I was raised with this mindset that work sucks. You know, <laughs> yeah. there was this old saying, work is Job. not spelled, work is not spelled F U N. This is like an old <laughs> thing that people used yeah. to say to me. And so then you get to a point for some people who, you know, they're, they're experiencing, all these, um, you know, the stress and the anxiety, all these negative aspects of their career being overworked. And mm-hmm. um, you don't recognize it because a lot of us just think this is normal. It's work. Work's not supposed to be fun, right? 100%. Yeah, you completely think it's normal. You, when you grow up in, you know, blue, a lot of blue collar families, you see people doing jobs that they maybe don't love or don't have any passion for. And you kind of just see it as a necessity. And so you that's what you grew up thinking is normal. Your life happens outside of work. And then you grow up and you realize, holy crap, how much your life is actually work. Um, but yeah, you you believe it's completely normal to not be in love with your job and kind of the grind, especially the grind of it, right? To feeling mm-hmm. like it's a grind, you, you, you chalk it up as completely normal. One other thing I wanted to go back to is you were talking about how you gave you know, extra effort. You've always been the type to, to give 120%. And I've had conversations with other women and I don't want to paint with a broad brush. So I don't know if this is your experience as well, but I've had conversations with other women where they say being a woman, particularly in a, like a male dominated industry, which finance is, you were in the finance industry. Um, do you think that played into you wanting to work harder to try to prove yourself and fit in? Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I would, I mean, even being in those situations, I remember talking to my husband about this, that, you know, you don't understand. I have to work three times as hard as you to even get into the room, you know, never mind speak at the table. <laughs> right. Like, and I, re- I distinctly remember having that conversation with my husband, um, about, because he would say like, why are you working so hard? Like, you know, can you not just, you know, do what everybody else does kind of fly under the radar. And I was like, I want to make something of myself, but in order to make something of myself, I have to, this is the level that I have to go to. And to be honest, this is the level the majority of women in my industry have to go to, to even get heard, get seen, that sort of thing. Um, especially in the corporate world. Um, the corporate world and financial services is still very much run by old white men. And so um, getting a seat at the table is incredibly difficult. So Natalie, tell us a little bit about um, 
what I kind of like to refer to um, in our conversations as your financial awakening, when you started to really comprehend the value of good financial advice with the um, experience that you had with with your family, like you said, with your parents. And and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how this has formed your why today as you serve clients who are financial advisors. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I think I left off kind of, uh, you know, at the beginning, I, I talked a little bit about how the start of my financial journey was, I guess, the beginning of a family tragedy for me, which is kind of a weird start for, <laughs> for most people to say that that's how their financial journey started. But, um, you know, I had just had this total upheaval in my family and we had just found out that it was caused by a rare hereditary disease. And my, you know, my dad was then on disability. And so, I mean, it was a huge shock to all of us. And I, um, at the time was working, at a, a small marketing firm. Um, my boss was absolutely amazing. Um, and he, he basically told me like, take whatever time you need. Um, but you should definitely see my financial advisor. And I mean, I, at the time I was like, uh, what? <laughs> and he was like, no, like you're young, you don't have a diagnosis yet. And, uh, you know, both your parents are now disabled and on disability and, um, you should consider, you know, getting critical in this life insurance, da, 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 da. And I was just like, okay. And I just thought, yeah, okay. He's a smart guy. I'll do what he says. <laughs> I'm son is financial advisor. And to be honest, I really thought that, um, this financial advisor was doing his fancy client, uh, a favor by even meeting with me. I, none, no one in my family had met with financial advisors. Um, obviously we didn't have insurance, but, um, it just wasn't a part of our conversations to, you know, to talk about finances, you know, like how we do today. And so I went to see this financial advisor strictly thinking he was just doing his, his client a favor, but he was actually lovely. Um, he had had a very similar experience to me when he was younger, his dad had passed away, unfortunately, uh, had a, um, uh, a health issue and had passed away from that health issue when he was around my, my age. And so he knew what it was like to have, you know, this huge family chaotic time. And it was a part of the reason why he had become a financial advisor. So he sat me down to talk to me about life insurance, critical illness, um, disability, all these things that I had never even heard about before, didn't understand. And so he was incredibly patient and empathetic with my situation. And when I went back to work, I remember thinking how to not like, how do people not know about what financial advisors do for people? Like how mm -hmm. are, how have I grown up in my, like my whole life, everybody that I kind of hung out with my entire family, like how has no one ever talked to me about meeting with a financial advisor? And this is the type of work that they can do and help you when we are all kind of grew up very, you know, blue collar, slightly poor. <laughs> like, so, um, uh, so I just decided that I'm going to, I'm going to make sure that more people understand what financial advisors can do for people. And that's what kicked off my own purpose, my own mission. And so we started to work with more financial advisors. I eventually joined Canada life, um, working with financial advisors, um, 
directly before moving up to like more of the marketing side of things and branding side of things within Canada Life. Um, but that's that's really what started it was just having that personal experience myself and then sitting back and thinking, how the heck do not do more people not understand what financial advisors can do? Um, and then wanting to help more people like me and my family not ex not go through those types of experiences of feeling completely stuck with no avenues. Yeah, it's crazy to me how in the dark most of the public is. What does a financial advisor do? I, I think most people can't really answer that question. They might say, well, they help you invest, but they sell yeah. you insurance. They yeah. help you budget, like all of the above. There's so many different aspects to our financial lives. And I think it's on us as an industry to make it much more clear to the public on how we serve them. There's a lot of negative opinions out there because when people have a bad experience, they're really quick to, to share with everybody about it. But you don't hear as many people talking about these profound life-changing experience that they had with a financial advisor. So again, I think it's on us to, to communicate better with the public. And that's why I, I love the work that you're doing. And I love that um, financial advisors in general are becoming much more comfortable with um, sharing their thoughts, sharing content on social media, right? Like in the past, oh. as you know, being in the industry for a long time, when social media came out, all the big companies were like, no, you have to stay yeah. off social media because we yeah. want to make sure we're controlling what you're saying. You want to make sure you're not saying anything that's not compliant, right? Mm -hmm. But as you see more and more individual financial advisors running their own businesses, like we could say whatever we want. Like as, as long <laughs> as I can have a conversation with a regulator and explain why I made the comments I did and defend myself, mm -hmm. I'll put it out there, right? And that's something that you're helping um, financial advisors with. So I think your, worth, your work obviously is helping your clients, but it's helping the public as well. So I just thought I would point that out. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. And yeah, I completely agree that, I mean, even even big companies who have compliance or firms that have compliance kind of over, um, overview, they are loosening their reins a little bit. And so we're even starting to see big changes within the industry finally, where, um, you know, they can share testimonials. I mean, as long as it's not overly salesy and it's more on the, you know, educational or talking about characteristics or things like that, then it's completely fine. And so um, the financial industry, financial advisors finding ways to explain to people on a more generic or understandable level um, is happening more and more, which I'm so excited about. Um, just talking to people about finances in a ways that they can understand, but then also compliance kind of loosening their belt a little bit and realizing that this is the way that the world is going and they kind of need to adapt with it and kind of roll with the bunches and figure it out. Yeah. I mean, you start to think, are compliance departments looking out for the companies or are they actually looking out for the public? Because if you're looking out for the public, you, you want the public to have transparency and, mm -hmm. and full understanding and education of what they're, what services they're acquiring. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I can imagine that being a really delicate balance, especially in those larger firms where the responsibility in those compliance departments is basically to prevent lawsuits for the company. Yeah. So um, of course you want to make sure that um, you're doing the, what's in the best interest of the client at all times, but in the back of their minds, they're, you know, they're protecting the company. And so um, that's now we're seeing more and more kind of independent compliant 
compliance and, and um, regulators. So that should be interesting. And I think that that's, um, I think that that'll evolve even more. And so I'm excited to see where that's going to take the financial industry now that they kind of open things up a little bit in the, in the regulations to allow things like testimonials and client stories. And, um, uh, and they've, you know, they've opened up the door and they, they're starting to share more on the education side of things to teach advisors about, you know, what they can and cannot say in, a, in, in layman's terms to helping financial advisors understanding that. So I'm excited to see how that's going to develop for sure. It's a really important part of the part of um, marketing. And, and I think it's really important for the industry in order to, for it to grow. Agreed. So we've been talking a lot about, um, the financial advice industry. But like I mentioned earlier, I think your work applies to really any professional service provider in the digital age. Like if you're trying to build a presence on social media and use social media as a tool to, to generate business, um, you really have to have a niche, right? Yeah, One thing I've learned is that like literally none of my marketing mattered until I figured out exactly who I was serving and how I was serving them, right? Having that clarity around my niche, it, it increased the value. Number one, first and foremost, it increased the value of my service because I can tailor it to that ideal client, which then increases word of mouth and referral business. Then I've got a clearer sense of communication, a much clearer sense of communication where I'm talking to somebody instead of trying to talk to everybody, because if you're trying to talk to everybody, you're not talking to anybody. And then it's easier to create content, right? The volume of content that I'm putting out is much, much easier when I know who my ideal client is. And again, whether you're a financial advisor, a lawyer, an attorney, or a uh, accountant, it doesn't really matter. You got to have a specific niche, I think, that you're serving. So, can you talk a little bit about that? Let's let's jump into the service that you provide and kind of the value that you see in um, you know building that online brand. Yeah, my main service is. Um... It's a one-on-one -on -one program for advisors. Um, but like you said, it's really, I, I've worked with coaches before. It's its really for anybody who believes in the power of niche marketing. But um, it's first narrowing in, it's, it's three phases. It's narrowing in on who you should be serving and why. And um, doing some discovery work to figure that out, defining that down to a level that um, that uh, that you have a connection with. And then uh, doing some competitor analysis to make sure that, you know, you're a right fit for the market and that, you know, there's somewhere in the market where you can fill a gap. And then the, the next phase of the one-on-one -on -one program moves into messaging, just like you're saying, finding ways to resonate with your ideal client. Once you've figured out who that person is, then you need to find out how to serve them and then how to explain how you're serving them and coming up with um, with content to, to help do that, uh, in ways that they'll listen, right. You talked about, you know, it, it didn't really matter until you had, until you had, a, a target audience. Well, it doesn't, right. It's just, it's a whole heck of a lot of noise when you're just talking about your services and things that you do over and over again, without tailoring it to who you're serving and how you're serving them. And, and then the, the last phase is the strategy. Once you've kind of gotten to that point where you have a really clear understanding of who you're serving, how you're serving them, um, then you can work on the strategy part, part of things and actually outline, 
you know, your, what your objective is and what your approach will be. And then you get into the actual tactical recommendations the tactical pieces. Um, and then we build that out together. So that's, that's my program. We focus on those three phases, niche messaging and strategy, um, in order to come up with what's called a growth playbook, which, um, over the course of eight weeks, uh, that we do this work together and then they get that growth playbook that outlines all three. Yeah, I think the order of that is so important. Niche first, then messaging, then strategy. Um, yes. And that's, so you've been key. very intentional about designing it that way. And again, one leads into the other when you figure out exactly who you're serving and how your business, whatever the services that you provide, and you figure out how that is valuable to that niche. Well, then you know how to speak to that person. There's your messaging. And then now that you know how to speak to them, you figure out, okay, what channels am I going to use to do it? And, and what type of content am I going to put out? So I really like that, that order that you put together. What have you found with people that um, have started your program? Like what's the, the biggest block for somebody to, to figuring out who their niche is? I mean, a lot of advisors who talk to me before they even sign are, are having a level of, of, nervousness around niching down in general. I think um, they're worried about potentially cutting cutting off sources of, of revenue by speaking directly to uh, a particular group of people in their marketing. So that I see before they even become clients. But I think that that's also as we're moving through the program together, something that we have to overcome together. So that's a big one. Um. Another one might be, you know, I really like to do a big discovery with people and get to know them on a personal level. And then, you know, I'll make some recommendations as to who I think that they should be serving based on, you know, their background and what they're seeing, what we're seeing from the competitor analysis as well and, and how they should serve people. And sometimes, um, sometimes who they think they should be serving versus who they should actually be serving is different. And they have to kind of come to terms with that, that, you know, you, you might have more success serving this type of person because, you know, you talk about this so much or you resonate with this. So like, for example, um, you know, you and I had talked about DIY investors, right. And, and you still talk to them on some level, but, um, we had talked, uh, you know, should you be serving, you know, burned out corporate employees? Should we be pivoting more to do something like that? And that made so much sense with your passion um, and, and your story and uh, and your messaging and, and things that you could, you know, you could really talk about that all day long. And um, there's so much opportunity there. And as well in, in terms of like referral sources and centers and influence and things like that, rather than just kind of DIY investing. And so, I mean, I always kind of have to have that kind of conversation as well, you know, and normally what, what happens is they have that level of trepidation around it. And then I craft their origin story. And a lot of the times I'm tying in like, their personal obstacle with then, you know, how they've kind of learned this lesson and then who into 
turn that into a powerful message as to who they're serving now and why. And once they see it laid out like that, a lot of the times advisors are like, how the heck did I not see this before? Just so succinctly laid out. It's like, of course, this is my mission. Of course, this is my purpose. (laughs) But uh, sometimes when you're just, you know, you're going through things with people, you're making recommendations, they they have a, a level of nervousness around it still until they can kind of see it as their mission and why. Yes. That's a, that's a big distinction is when you have that mission and that purpose, it makes it a heck of a lot easier. It takes that, it takes, you know, kind of being able to see or maybe have somebody else maybe show it to you. I'm not sure what it is about that. Maybe it's just somebody kind of taking a step back and objectively saying, you know, this is who you are and this is what people are resonating with. So why don't you do this more? I think you could dive into this and then look how it, you know, look at this succinct, succinct powerful story is this something you want to step into and usually by that point they're like yep (laughs) yeah and i like how you you said you start out by um really getting to know your client as a person you know and i think any any entrepreneur out there or aspiring entrepreneur out there um needs to really get to know themselves as a person i think so and and some people may say well i already know who i am but I don't know. I think a lot of people sometimes don't know themselves on a deep enough level. And it takes a lot of self-reflection and, you know, figuring out who you actually are. If you strip away all of society's expectations and what do you value? And then that leads you to a pretty obvious solution of the type of person that you need to be helping, that you need to be serving. And once you get to that point, then you've got that sense of purpose and that sense of mission. So yeah, I think that's a, that's a very important part of um, diving into entrepreneurship is just, again, yeah. identifying that. I mean, and it's, it's a really tough thing to do, right? It's a really tough thing to do on your own. And it's even a really tough thing to do as um, like in my position as well, because it takes a, a level, a really deep level of listening to be able to do that, right? To pick out those moments where people actually come alive and talk about their passion, um, and something that is very interesting for the, for them to kind of focus on and where can you hear kind of like the moments wh- where they talk about what they think they should be doing versus what actually lights them up. Um, and so I, when you're doing those things on your own, I think you're right. Those society expectations kind of play into it a little bit. You're hearing, you know, you're hearing these words come out of your mouth because on some level, you think that's what you should be saying, or you think that's what you should be doing, but having somebody else go, you know, just a minute. I, when you talked about this, I felt it. Like I really heard that. And, you know, throughout our conversations, it's come up here and here and here. And, um, when you take great notes and you have recordings, so you can kind of go back and pinpoint those things on how often it's come up and how, you know, um, how somebody has reacted in that, in those moments. And I think that that's why it's so important to work with somebody else, um, to help you identify that because it can be really tough. It can. And there's always the temptation to, to, um, identify a niche or a target market, however you want to refer to it based on the financial opportunity. I see this a lot of yeah. times with financial advisors where they say, I want to serve doctors. Well, why? Well, because doctors make a lot of money and they need financial advisors. Yeah. That's not really going to resonate with your ideal no. client. 
right? <laughs> no. So when you can really dig down and find something meaningful, you know, that's either happened in your life or, or, you know, something that you learned that really had a profound impact in the way you view the world. And then mm -hmm. you can turn that into, you know, why you're serving a specific set of people much more powerful. And that, that's going to be more sustainable and, and probably result in more business growth. hundred percent. And honestly, like there's opportunities in every single market. Um, you know, I know so many advisors want to just target doctors and lawyers because they see the money, but um, you'd be shocked at the opportunities in, um, in different markets, right? Like um, we're, even if you're just targeting women, like if you're looking at, there's something about you that's happened in your background and you know, you're, you know that you want to help women in some way and you kind of dig down and you understand why, like what the story is behind that. And, um, it's funny, I'm, I'm working with a financial advisor recently who just went through this, literally thought I'd love to serve lawyers and doctors. Um, and now is moving forward to serve widows and caregivers because, um, I mean, of course there's opportunities in that market, uh, but he realized that a big part of his journey to do what he do, does now and why he's actually passionate about it is to help women um, protect their assets. And he's very much wanting to help them um, through this transition of, of their life because he went through it. He was actually a caregiver when his dad passed away, kind of left a mess of finances and he had to figure it out for himself and his family. And he kind of took charge in that situation, but he never, he doesn't want that to happen to anybody else. Um, and so he realized that you know, he has some real passion in helping people that are gone through that, a similar situation to him. Um, and he lights up during those points and there is plenty of market opportunity and to be honest, money to be found in that market. Totally. Yeah. That personal connection. Um, I was just thinking of a couple of just random examples of this. It could be something like, you know, if you're an engineer and you've been frustrated your whole career because of the bottlenecks that you see in your in the business operations but the leaders right the people in the company that are making the money decisions don't address those issues or don't know how to address those issues well then you can take that frustration that you've had throughout your career and maybe become a consultant for companies to help them remove bottlenecks from their operations. Yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, there's another example I think of all the time with my friend Shab, who I think, you know, Shab, um, she worked in the tech world, right? She was a woman in the tech world mm -hmm. that's dominated by men. And now her mission is to help other women in the tech world that are feeling overworked and unfulfilled. So she's taking that you know, uh, circumstance that she went through and using that to help others. So there's, you could go in so many different directions with this, but again, yeah. your process that you have, Natalie, of identifying who is that niche and what's your personal connection to them, I think is just so valuable. Yeah. I mean, it's a process to dig down into it and to kind of not to do the discovery for the, you know, to make somebody feel comfortable enough to talk about those personal situations, but then also to do the, you know, the checklist of things that are required really to be a great niche as well, to make sure that 
you have that connection, that they see themselves as a group, that they um, they identify together, um, that they have you know similar financial issues, uh, that it, there's just a whole list of things. Once you've kind of done that work to kind of figure out, you know, on a personal level, these are who you could connect with. Okay, does it meet all these, you know, check boxes for a great niche? And that's kind of the something that's like a little bit proprietary to my own process, I guess, as well, right? To just to make sure that from a marketing perspective and a branding perspective, it's going to work as well. Yeah. I think that's really important. One is to, you know, make sure you have that purpose because it's going to carry you through in all those really hard times in your business. <laughs> and then also, you know, from a marketing perspective, is it a great niche? And, you know, um, having the experience that I have, I can help you with that. It's, you know, getting past some of those niches like, you know, women or generation. No, those are entire demographics, <laughs> right? <laughs> so I do get those questions a lot too. Um, do you think this is a great niche? And I'm like, that is not a niche. Nope. Not a niche. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. Natalie, um, again, thanks so much for coming on. Always enjoy our conversations. Um, Same. If you're on LinkedIn, check out Natalie, Natalie Hales, it's spelled H-A-L-E-S, and we'll make sure it's in the show notes. But is there anywhere else that people can go if they want to find out more information about you? Yeah, they can check out my website at uh, nataliehales.com. Um, there's a great quiz that I just uh, put up there that helps uh, financial advisors understand where they should spend their marketing, t their time and their marketing dollars. And um, that leads off into a great email sequence too, that will give you some really fantastic tips and tricks. Cool. Sounds good, Natalie. Thank you so much for having me, Brian. Thanks for listening today. And if you have a moment, check out my website at reflectivewealth.com. Everything you need to know about my business is there. Because if there's one thing I've learned in my career, transparency and accountability are critical to a healthy financial services industry. Thanks and see you next time.